Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. We're back with our theme music. That's our right. theme music. The real theme music. We've had a whole summer of adapted theme music mm-hmm. for the summer shorts we've done, for Patreon episodes that they have their own theme music anyway. Yeah. And so now we are back, which means we are also back to full episodes. Yes, we are. Whew. Who's ready? I'm ready. Are you? I blast wrote two full-length stories in two days. You did. That's how excited I was. Yeah. It has nothing to do with me waiting too long <laughs> and being really bad at time management when I have a break. Yeah. Well, also, and our kids had, had activities starting this week. So it was like you actually had a little bit of breathing room. <laughs> because of that. But I also didn't have breathing room because I had to take them to their activities. Well, okay. That's a fair point too. <laughs> <laughs> I took them to one. You did. Thank so you. That, that was, was you really, know, that I, was really nice. I did my part. That's basically I all, wrote, all my part. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Don't even. Oh yeah. yeah. I wrote, I wrote a little bit while people were gone. So that was nice. Yeah. That's good. Well, other than being excited about full-length episodes being back again here now, now that we're we're at the other end of the summer shorts, mm-hmm. we need to answer the question everybody wants to know. What are you drinking? It is pumpkin spice latte season. Mm-hmm. So I've got me a pumpkin spice latte, a tiny one, just like last night, which our Patreon listeners Yes. They, Already they got, got to hear about that. Yes. Yeah. But I do it with the nonfat milk and no whipped cream and none of the powder on top because I feel like it makes it taste like uh, like grainy mm-hmm. and almost like there's like yeah, sand in it. a little bit. Yeah. Bothers me a little yep. bit. I know what you're, I yeah. know exactly what you're talking about. So all the sugar, but fat-free milk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Well, I decided even though the summer feels like it's about over, um, I was like looking around for a drink that I could drink a little bit more guilt-free. And this isn't totally guilt-free, but it is still tasty. And we have talked about it many times on this podcast. Big fans. Big fans of the Simply Spiked Strawberry Lemonade. Honestly, it's always Simply Spiked Lemonade season. Not an ad. Not an ad. We just love it that much. We sure do. But if they wanted to send us some free ones just, (laughs) just for the extra boost, we would accept it. Sure. So it is definitely on the higher end of the sugars that I'm trying to avoid right now. Whoops. 
but you know, my birthday is in like two weeks. So I, you know, birthday month. Yeah. Just easing into sugars (laughs) for my birthday. Perfect. (laughs) That's how it goes. Right. Yes. All right. Well, everybody, uh, we've also been away from doing the feel good facts. Mm. We haven't done one of those in a while either. You got a fresh stock of feel-good facts for us? I sure do. Okay. So actually, for this one, we're going to shout out a local hero, <gasps> oh, or a th- local I, icon, yes. if you will, Howie the Crab. Howie the Crab. So TikTok Howie, famous. I love Howie the Crab. So Howie is a rainbow crab from Omaha, Nebraska, and she's making international news after successfully completing her most recent molt. Molting is a highly stressful natural process for a crab, and due to Howie's advanced age, there were concerns that she might not survive the molt. But fear not. She not only survived, but celebrated with caviar and by sporting (laughs) one of her many favorite hats after a few days of resting post-molt. So we're really proud of you, Howie. Great job, Howie. Howie, if you're listening, truly stand. Like, we stand Howie the Crab. Yes, it's true. Howie can do nothing wrong. For real. We sure do. We, we, Howie has we've merch. Giggled. We've giggled at a lot. Howie has merch? Yeah. That's she amazing. should have merch. Wow. I mean, yes. I'm just surprised. She is everything that I aspire to be. Well, a crab. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that gets fed caviar on camera and gets thousands upon thousands of views. And, sure. And love from the entire world. Yep. All right. Well, my dear, let's cut right to the chase. What do you have for us today? Okay. So after more than 100 days on the run, 29-year-old Alexander Pierce returned to the prison from which he'd made a remarkable escape. He returned alone, however, which was odd because Alexander had escaped with seven other men. So what happened to the others? According to Alexander, he'd eaten them. What? And believe it or not, this would not be the last time he'd escape, nor would it be the last time he would claim to have eaten his fellow man. This is the shocking story of a petty criminal turned cannibal. (laughs) This is the story of Alexander Pierce. Hang on, Kev. This one is a doozy. Uh, Already. Yes, it is. What an intro. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That was like not really giving anything away either. Which Seriously? is crazy. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm like, what else is there to tell? That, that just, I mean, maybe it is. Let's close it up. Uh, no, that's okay. Let's go. Okay, so Alexander Pierce was born in 1790 in County Monaghan, Ireland. He was the son of a farm laborer, and as was common at the time, he followed in his father's footsteps and also worked as a farm laborer. Alexander was born in the middle of an intense population boom that took place in Ireland. At the turn of the 18th century, Ireland's population was sitting at around 2 million people, and by the turn of the 19th century, it was sitting at around 5 million people. Hmm. So like more than doubled in 100 years. But beyond that, there's virtually nothing really known about his younger years, since records of the average Joe weren't super common at the time, Hmm. and because many of the court records taken between 1790 and 1835 were destroyed in a fire. Oh, which is like a huge bummer, which yeah. is weird because they were destroyed in a fire in like the 1900s. So it's like, dang, they made it that long. Yeah, They held on for long enough for them to just get lost to time. Mm-hmm. Now that's a bummer. But we do know that as he made his way into his teenage years and early 20s, Alexander ventured away from his life on the farm and into the world of petty crimes. 
It's also important to know that at this time, Ireland was a British colony that hadn't yet achieved independence from the crown. And so when someone was arrested, they were dealt with accordingly. And unfortunately, even the least significant of crimes could land a person with serious jail time or worse. Oh, weird. So by the 18th and 19th centuries, London prisons were so overcrowded simply due to the types of things that could land a fellow with a felony charge. Employment was in the toilet, and it was desperate times for countless people across the area. It was so bad that anyone convicted of a felony or deemed to be undesirable in British society could be sentenced to do their time in a prison that was over capacity, in one of the grossly overcrowded and poorly maintained floating prisons, which is exactly what it sounds like. Oh my gosh, it's just a prison on the water? Yeah, like boats that were just crammed with men. And women, but mostly men in terrible quarters, very poorly sanitized, very poorly ventilated on water, which is so bad. And they could also face what's called penal transportation. Penal transportation was a form of punishment where someone who was convicted of a felony would be shipped off to a far off place to serve their time. While some people saw this as a win, given that something as small as shoplifting could have previously resulted in someone's execution... Others saw it for what it was, a non-solution to the problem. Yeah. Like, we're not going to change the law at all. We're not going to keep up with the times to oversimplify. Right. We're just going to ship them away. Right. To me, it feels like a non-solution. It just puts it puts the problem somewhere else. Yeah. Well, so, and also, I'll, I'll say this. We actually have, uh, like, a. I don't want to, like, over-dramatize it. But we have a similar problem modern day in the states oh, because yeah. prisons are overcrowded. Yeah, we could talk. We could talk stuff. about prison reform and all that stuff till the cows come home. Right. So it's not even that like out of the ordinary for us to to like think about this and to be frustrated with yeah. the state. Yeah. Um, but this is even to another level mm-hmm. because there's so much inhumanity mm-hmm. happening, and yeah. um, it's also I don't know if we would necessarily call this racist, but it's definitely prejudiced towards it's people. It's classist, a, for yeah, sure. definitely classist. There's tons of prejudice everywhere against people who are not from your country. Right. Which, yeah, there's lots of problems. You'll feel around. this more as we go. And okay. it's not, I mean, it, it was a problem all across Europe. Yeah. Like, it wasn't just in Ireland or whatever. Yeah. It was, it was a majorly a class problem. Hmm. So, from 1700 until the revolution in the late 1700s, criminals would be sent to the United States, where they would be assigned slave labor for a designated period of time. And it was sort of painted like, if someone undergoes penal transportation, does their time working, when they've completed their sentence of either 7 or 14 years, then there's this whole new big wide world where they have all this opportunity to flourish right in front of them. So, it was basically like, Slave labor with a weird hypothetical redemption arc, according to the way that it was reasoned at the time. Hmm. To me, it just sounds like figuring out a way to make undesirables someone else's problem, which is just really sad, honestly. At the height of the American Revolutionary War, the penal transportation system had been effectively derailed, at least in partnership with America. And so the British government had to figure out where they were going to ship people off to instead. And so they decided on Australia and an island about 150 miles away from the mainland known as Van Diemen's Land or present-day Tasmania. 
So first established as a British colony in 1803, Van Diemen's Land would become a separate colony in 1825. Between the years of 1788 and 1868, more than 150,000 people convicted of crimes would be sent to the penal colonies established in Australia. Hmm. 150,000. That's a lot of people. Yeah. The penal colony set up in Van Diemen's Land would be referred to as Hobart Town. I think that was the first one because there was more than one colony. Wow. It would quickly be considered the primary colony used for transportation, and even just the process of getting there was incredibly grueling. The ships that would carry convicts from Ireland would be packed to the brim with people to be transported. The conditions were inhumane at best, and the travels were rough and long, with people being forced into small, dirty quarters for months at a time with little to no reprieve. But we'll talk more about that in just a second. Mm, Okay. So jumping to the year 1819, Alexander Pierce was arrested and charged with the theft of six pairs of shoes and was promptly sentenced to seven years of penal transportation in Van Diemen's Land. Wow. that Yeah, that punishment does not fit that crime. No, not even a little bit. Wow. After his trial at 29 years of age, Alexander would be marched over 200 miles on foot to Cork Harbor, where he would be promptly loaded up into Castle Forbes, a massive ship built for the purpose of transporting, or transporting, sorry, convicts. Wow. Transportating. Transportating, that's okay. (laughs) We make up new words sometimes, it's fine. (laughs) We do. But yeah, like this, the Castle Forbes was built solely to transport convicts. Yeah. So like the fact that they would need that is very fascinating to me well it's it's a point that they they've committed Mm -hmm. this kind of a vision Mm -hmm. towards sending away people that do the things that they don't like stealing shoes right and i'm i'm not saying stealing shoes is like all well and good but also if somebody needs shoes that bad right that's let them have the dang shoes that's Gosh, that's like the they're like in desperate poverty, right? Well, in the book that I was reading about this, I didn't write this down, but the book that I was reading about this said that it's very easy to assume, based off of the little information that we do know, that he was most likely born into an Irish Catholic family, which they were facing their own insane Mm -hmm. problems at the time, Mm -hmm. and that it's very plausible that he spent at least some of his younger years as an orphan due to just the social climate and the conflict that was happening at the time. It's wow. it's not hard to believe that someone like Alexander and countless people like him, yeah. that was their only option at some point was to have to resort to theft, whether it was to make a living or whether it was to keep their bellies full right, or to keep shoes on their feet. Right. So like, it's a very complicated thing with a non-solution in place that I don't think could have made it better. Yeah just really, really sad. So along with Alexander, there were an additional 139 convicts aboard the Castle Forbes, and all but one of them were Irish. Ranging from 14 to 67 years of age, most of the convicts were facing seven years of transportation, while 10 were facing 14 years, and 16 of them were facing life. Oh, wow. Yeah. The ship set sail on October 3rd, 1819. The passengers on board were overseen by a small staff of 30 to 35 officers of varying ranks who saw to it that the ship maintained order to some degree. For 22 hours a day, the convicts were forced below deck into small rooms that were about six square feet with four beds in each room. 
during oh. some of the many, many storms, all of the ventilation below deck where the prisoners were would be sealed, leading to overflowing toilets, mixing with all manner of other bodily fluids and seawater. Oh. As you can imagine, the living quarters were absolutely disgusting, completely unsanitary for human life, and yet that was their reality. Right. Discipline was highly valued and maintained on board, and convicts were each issued a few changes of clothes, which they were in charge of washing twice a week. The men were also expected to maintain a clean, like a clean appearance, despite spending most of their time in dark, dingy spaces with 139 other men and boys. Mm. That, that, how? Yeah. Especially. It on sounds a boat. like there was like a washing station. Like they they had something for them to use. And it probably had oh. to be pretty well organized so that everybody who wanted to wash could. Yeah. But like I, there would be trouble if your mm. clothes weren't clean. They had wow. small portions of food such as oatmeal, bread, the occasional meat and that sort of stuff. And when the food supply ran low towards the end of the journey, everyone survived off of biscuits, knowing full well that the flour that was used to make them hadn't been safe from mice or bugs that had snuck their way into the supply, mm. causing many of the men on board to suffer from food poisoning and dysentery. Good grief. When the ship finally arrived in present-day Sydney Harbor on January 20th, 1820, morale of both passengers and staff was low, to put it lightly. And this was made all the worse when the crew was informed that they wouldn't be completing their transportation at this location, but instead they would be sent to Hobart Town. They loaded back up and arrived at Hobart Town on February 28, 1820. So they set sail at the beginning of October, didn't get there until the final day of February. Yeah. That's a long time. That is a super long time. When I was reading, like, some of the waves that they would have likely had to face were, like, 100 feet high. Like, yeah. massive tossing waves. Well, if you think about it, the only way to get from uh, Ireland to Australia reasonably mm -hmm. is to go down. You have to cross over the equator, go down around South Africa, mm -hmm. and come around that way. Mm -hmm. And it, those are just such treacherous waves mm -hmm. and so many different uh uh climates that you're crossing even if i mean especially if you're going from like over the winter months granted you're going to the equator over the winter months but even still like there's a degree of like you get further from the equator you're going to experience winter and you're going to experience mm -hmm. super cold waters because it's in the in the ocean right like there's just so much going on that i'm like that would be miserable so extremely miserable well and then yeah. coupling all of that with the illness and with the fact that the guys got two hours of day a day of sunlight like oh, that's man. really awful so alexander pierce was renamed convict 102 and he set foot in hobart town to begin his sentence shortly after their arrival with a population just shy of 5,000 people, with nearly 60% of those being convicted transports, it was a strange new place indeed. Once assigned to their posts, the prisoners would essentially be assigned labor jobs with regular citizens of Hobart Town overseeing their work. Given the huge number of prisoners compared to the shockingly small number of guards who were set to maintain order, a super intense disciplinary system was put in place. Floggings were a regular occurrence in Hobart Town. Anyone undergoing a flogging would be tied up to a wooden post and given lashes with a whip. Someone could be forced into a flogging for any number of offenses, such as 25 lashes for missing a mandatory church service held on Sundays, 
Some men would be whipped upwards of 75 to 100 times, depending on the offense that they had committed. And if they were a regular offender or even if a guard just really didn't like this certain guy. Oh, wow. Floggings were so commonplace that they actually moved the doctor's quarters closer to the whipping post so that it would be easier to move an injured prisoner in for medical care. Man, I... So gross. Like, that's like disgusting, right? Yes. Also, at some point, you have to ask yourself the question if we need the doctor this often, maybe we're doing it too much. Or maybe we're just not doing something right. Right. Maybe anything. Lots of non solutions here. Yeah. So it's not hard to wonder why there was almost always an undercurrent of rebellion bubbling beneath the surface and why officer prisoner relations were not great. Big surprise. Alexander was assigned work with a shepherd named John Bellinger. While he was on the Castle Forbes, Alexander was noted only as quiet, and he seemed to bring that same trait with him into Hobart Town. He worked pretty peacefully and uneventfully with Bellinger for about nine months before he was moved to a second sheep farm, this one owned by a man named William Scattergood, which is a fun last name. (laughs) So interestingly enough, Scattergood was kind of the poster boy for penal transportation. He'd once been a convict serving seven years for his crimes and eventually did so well that he was able to own and maintain his own farm. He was kind of the success story that the system relied on in order to keep it going and to be generally viewed as more humane than execution. Hmm. Like you can see and hear almost how easy it would be to spin this whole thing when you look at someone's story like Scattergoods. See, we put this system in place and he thrived in it and now he's a successful Shepherd. Right. Now he has his own business and owns his own land. And like there were, this will come up again. There were a lot of uh, ex-convicts like Scattergood who owned farms across the area, like in different places of Australia. He was not the only one, but that's the kind of story that a system like this relies on. One guy did well. Right. One guy made it out alive. Right. And is now doing okay. Right. Instead of is constantly going through it over and over and over again, which is the one that they ignore. Right. And that seems to be the majority. Yes. Alexander didn't love his job. It was demanding and backbreaking and even sometimes dangerous considering the harsh landscape that he was working in day and night. Prisoners worked on kind of a trust-based system, so they typically weren't chained or handcuffed when they worked which sounds like nice, I guess, but this would lead plenty of men to hatch plans of escaping and living off the land rather than enduring another minute of their situation. Hmm. And this would quickly become true for Alexander. In late 1820, Alexander and three other convicts took off into the Tasmanian bush, nicknaming their band of survivors the Bush Rangers. The Bush Rangers survived by foraging, sneaking into, and stealing from other less well-guarded settlements, etc., But surviving in a landscape and among wildlife and indigenous people who were not interested in friendship with the Bush Rangers proved to be equally as difficult and demanding as life in Hobart Town. And so in March of 1821, after months on the run, the men would all turn themselves in at Coal Harbor in Hobart Town. So the fact that he and the others were able to escape at all is a little bit funny because Mm -hmm. these places were considered to be inescapable because of where they were located. The assumption was like, because this place is so harsh to begin with and with there being dangerous wildlife and like terrain that these guys wouldn't be familiar with coming from a distant land with like a totally different climate, like all that kind of stuff. They kind of considered that to almost be enough to deter anyone from attempting to escape. But like it definitely didn't. 
Right. It, well, it sounds like it's pretty much just deterrence. It's not necessarily a security system right. of any real sort. Right. And so if you're um, maybe not the the most strategic person, mm-hmm. then yeah, you'd be like, how would I even survive? Right. But if you have have that kind of a gift to think and process that kind of stuff through, you go, oh, uh, lots of ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you just do it. Right. So interesting. So the next year was really rough for Alexander. He was a regular candidate for floggings, receiving 50 plus lashes for such abominable offenses, such as stealing ducks and turkeys, stealing a wine glass, stealing a wheelbarrow, uh, drunken disorderly, absconding, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So like he was getting whipped all the time for like normal things. Right. Like, well, especially for someone who who's was that pressed, he was sent there for stealing shoes. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the comparison here is like, okay, so he feels like he needs something. So he takes it right. <laughs> like, so what should you do about that? I feel like there's a lot of like kindergarten level, like problem solving that thankfully we have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, it, boy, the strides we've taken since the early 1800s. <laughs> no joke. But still, Alexander managed to escape multiple times. He would be quickly caught and his punishments would become increasingly severe. He'd be forced to work with only breakfast before sunrise and a small dinner once the sun had set. And the whole thing was just miserable. Hmm. After several of these offenses and with no sign of Alexander tiring from them anytime soon, the authorities believed that they were witnessing a pattern with him, that he was too difficult and too much of a flight risk to allow any of the usual freedoms afforded to the other prisoners. And so in July of 1822, he was sent to Sarah's Island in Macquarie Harbor, which is another penal colony and one that was considered much more difficult to escape from, where he would be jailed and forced into even more backbreaking labor for the remainder of his sentence. Mm. So that was kind of a typical thing. You get a difficult guy who runs away a lot, keeps getting in trouble doing the same things at one of the colonies, and they would get shipped off to an increasingly higher security, more strict right. colony right. until they could find one that would manage him, basically. Wow. So Sarah's Island was given its specific location because it was considered, like I said, even more difficult to escape from. Situated in a barely navigable cove just inside of Hell's Gates, the mouth to Macquarie Harbor, Sarah's Island was surrounded on all sides by either water, dense rainforests, or towering mountain ranges. And unlike his previous work experience, Alexander and the other prisoners were forced to work all day chopping lumber while firmly shackled in heavy iron chains. Oof. With 170 prisoners and only 11 guards, however, it wasn't that different of a scenario from Hobart Town in that harsh discipline was considered a must in order to maintain any semblance of peace and order. Gone were the days of a simple 25 to 50 lashes for bad behavior, and instead, a hundred lashes became the new baseline. Oh, there was geez. also the ever-looming threat of being forced into solitary confinement. The men would work long days on meager rations of the same boring food each day. They would work in rain or shine, oftentimes working long hours in the middle of some of the harshest storms that would strike the area, and often with food poisoning and various other illnesses brought on by less than favorable food and living like living conditions. Mm-hmm. Yuck. 
So Alexander worked as a logger alongside seven other men who all had their fair share of troubles at Sarah's Island and who all longed for freedom and escape. This included 31-year-old Englishman Robert Greenhill. Greenhill was a successful mariner before he was sentenced to 14 years of penal transportation for stealing a coat. But not just any coat. He had stolen his wife's coat. And he got 14 years of transportation for stealing his wife's coat. What? I'm not sure, like, why or how like did they have a bad marriage like were they like in the process of separating probably not at this time yeah was she just like looking for a reason to get him out of the house or was he like a real bad dude i don't know yeah next was 27 year old irishman matthew travers he was serving a life sentence for stealing at the county kildare sessions and had become fast friends with greenhill the two would come up with plenty of schemes together and would get busted and lashed for pretty much all of them Next was 25-year-old Irishman Alexander Dalton. Dalton was an ex-soldier who had served in Gibraltar. He was serving seven years on Sarah's Island for perjury. The youngest of the group was 22-year-old Englishman Thomas Boddenham, who was serving on Sarah's Island, and he was the only member of the group who had committed any level of violent crime. Hmm. I believe he was serving seven years for assault. There was also 24-year-old John Mather, who was a Scotsman, sentenced for forging 15 pounds. There was also oh, 15 pounds. Seriously. Yeah. Yep. I mean, he I'm got, sure that was more than than now, but even still, I'm like, come on. I know. Then there's William Kennerly. There's not much information available about him, but it's believed that he was also from Ireland. And then the last man was a guy either named William or Edward Brown, but he was nicknamed Little Brown, which was probably a dig at his height. <laughs> there's not very much known about him either, but it's believed that he was in his late 50s and that he'd spent a majority of his life in the prison system. Hmm. He was described as an old lag, which is just a term for someone who has had their life and personality effectively beaten out of them by the system. Oh, which that's is really like sad. that's a term that I learned today and was immediately just sad. Yeah. Oh, that's depressing. There's a term for it. It happens enough. Yeah. Or at least at that time it happened enough that there's a term. Yeah. So the men worked, like I said, as loggers, which entailed them stripping bark from trees before chopping and processing lumber that would be sent to Hobart Town, where it would be used in the construction of boats. One day, as the guys were humming along at their work, Greenhill started talking about the possibility of escaping from Sarah's Island. While it was smack dab in the middle of pretty impenetrable natural landscapes, Greenhill believed that it was something that was possible if they came up with a clever enough plan. Over time, the whole group was inspired to actually go for it. They formulated a plan. They would steal a boat small enough to escape through Hell's Gates and into freedom, away from the British justice system. Interestingly enough, they were not the first group to come up with a plan like this, let alone a successful one. There were other groups who had stolen boats of different sizes and had successfully made their way as far as present-day Jakarta and even Chile. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a... That's a pretty good long boat ride. Yeah, so like they would steal small boats because the the Hell's Gates are really small, like mm-hmm. they're super narrow. Yeah. And so they would need to take a small boat and then they would go to a different area on the island where they would have like the whalers, the oh, really big boats. Yeah. So they would like sink their small boat so that nobody would like know that they'd taken yeah. it. Yeah. And then steal <laughs> the whalers. 
Wow. Which is impressive. That is impressive. And plenty would also run out into the bush. They would typically either never come back. Right. Because they probably succumb to the elements. Right. Or they would be very quickly caught because they're like, oh, I don't know how to get right. through this. You right. know. Well, and so, that, that part of Australia is intense, is my understanding. Yeah. Still, even today. Yeah. Yes. So the question quickly became how they would pull all of this off under the closely monitored patrols watching Hell's Gates. How are we going to yeah. do it? They're, they're always watching. It's believed that the group formed a friendship with another inmate, a guy by the name of John Douglas. So Douglas was literate and he was very intelligent and he had great compassion for all of his fellow prisoners that were literally being crushed under the weight of penal transportation. He'd worked his way up into some pretty important jobs, jobs that would give him access to schedules and records, which would be useful in the event that someone was trying to find the best time to escape. Oh, little yeah. fun fact here is that Douglas would later go on to testify in front of London Parliament about the cruel, oftentimes illegal punishments that prisoners in Australian penal colonies would be subjected to. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So this guy became like really important mm -hmm. in this conversation later. With the help of Douglas, the group planned to wait until nightfall when the pilot or the like main guard constable kind of guy who oversaw Hell's Gates, mm -hmm. would be busy running a side hustle of selling oil to workers at Sarah's Island. <laughs> so he's like, I know what time he goes and does this. Yeah. They would then take a small boat into the harbor, sneak into the pilot's quarters and steal his food provisions and some gear, and then they would sneak through Hell's Gates. The group would then sail through the day until arriving up in uh, Coal Harbor, where they would steal a larger, more seaworthy ship. They would then sail up the coast of Van Diemen's Land, east to the Bass Strait, and then out into the Pacific, where they would try their luck in the open ocean. Hmm. Shortly before attempting their escape, Greenhill was sent to work at the coal works up the coast, but this actually ended up being somewhat helpful because he could serve as kind of a lookout while the remainder of the group headed for Hell's Gates. The group officially made their escape on September 20th, 1820, picking up Greenhill along their way. But shortly into their journey, they believed that they'd been spotted. So they ditched the boat and decided to try their luck on foot. Mm. Greenhill kind of almost immediately took on the role of group leader, kind of like by default, because he was the one with the most experience, not only with the sea, but with navigating and like sure. how to use the sun and the stars and all that to know where you are. Yeah. They made their way into the Tasmanian wilderness with about a week's worth of provisions, a single axe and whatever odds and ends that they could grab on their way out. So really, they didn't have much. They also were wearing their prison clothes, which were just like casu very casual, lightweight material. Like mm. these are not sturdy outdoors. Right. Not great for the Tasmanian wilderness. No. So the group headed east, venturing further and further into the rough terrain of the wilderness. Things were pretty bad, like pretty much immediately. Not only was it cold and wet, but it was also intensely dark. And they didn't have any protective clothing or gear to help them navigate. So it was pretty much up to Green Hill's guest guesswork. Hmm. I mean, it was sort of guesswork and sort of years of practice, but like he'd never done it in this way. You know what right, I mean? Right, right. It's, it's a new place with new challenges. He has the general idea of how to survive outdoors. Right. But he's not like able to say, 
and in this place. Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's, just it's a new world yeah. for all of them. Right. So they were getting cuts from thorny bushes and vines. They were using all of their strength, trudging up mountainsides and wielding the single axe to make a way through the more dense areas of vegetation. And all in all, it was just not a good time. Right. Somewhere between day eight and day 15, they'd completely run out of provisions and group morale was kaput. They were tired, growing increasingly fearful and worried that they may never make their way out of the forest. And the oldest member, Brown, was struggling to keep up. Mm. And it was even considered that maybe they should leave him behind so that they could keep a more steady pace. Because they're also trying to outrun the guards, you know? As the hunger crept over the group and put them all in a chokehold, it wouldn't be long before true horror would begin to unfold. Oh so, boy. okay. The group was trying to figure out a solution to their starvation, and they came to this conclusion. Someone in the group needed to die so the rest of the group would be able to live. Mm. Greenhill, axe in hand, decided that the group should draw lots, and whoever drew the shortest straw would have to die. Dalton drew the shortest straw, and before he even had time to react, he was struck across the head with the axe and knocked out. So a little disclaimer moment, everything that I'm telling you about the escape is according to Pierce's testimony. Mm -hmm. There are some details that I've seen reported on in multiple ways. uh, And I didn't really make the best notes, just being honest for when, like when I stumble on Mm -hmm. those, I'll just kind of bring them up as as we go. But yeah, this is all based on Pierce's testimony. Okay. So with all of that to say, many have speculated that Dalton was just straight up chosen like he, they hadn't drawn lots, but they picked Dalton to go first because he had worked on Sarah's Island as a volunteer flogger. Oh. Prisoners who were on the good side of the main authorities would sometimes be granted work as guards or floggers, and Dalton was one of those people. So the assumption is that he was already the least favorite in the group, and yeah. so it's not even just Oof. like possible, it's very probable yeah. that the group decided to kill the traitor first. Right. Like those guys in the colonies were like, way worse than the guards in the eyes of their fellow inmates. Right. Like you are a traitor. Well, traitor. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Exactly. Yeah. So Travers then dragged Dalton away, slit his throat and bled him out. Travers had worked as a butcher and so he knew how to process meat. And so as horrifying as it is, that's exactly what he did to Dalton's body. He wow. removed the organs, sliced flesh and then cooked and broiled them over the fire. And then the group feasted. Goodness. They the follow- all did. Yeah, all of them. Ooh, this that's is not what I was expecting. According okay. to Pierce. This is what Pierce mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. He could be lying. The following day, it became obvious that there was a divide in the group. Pierce, Greenhill, Travers, and Mather formed their group while everyone else tried to plot out their next move. Because, like, they just now been through something. Right. Like, very formative. You know, the two oldest members of the group, Kennerly and Brown, actually decided to sneak away and run back to Sarah's Island. The men successfully arrived after a few grueling days running through the forest, but died shortly after their arrival. The official cause of death for these two was exhaustion, but there's been a ton of speculation from people wondering if the men had died receiving an unholy amount of lashes on the whipping post for escaping. But I mean, we'll never really know Mm. that. Yeah. For sure, one way or the other. So this is one of those moments that is reported on in different ways. So Bodenham was unaccounted for also. So we don't know for sure, but one version of the story is that he also tried to chance it in the forest. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
or that the others decided that he would be the next meal. Sure. Yeah. But either way, he was out of the picture. Okay. So we're left with Pierce, Greenhill, Travers, and Mather, with Greenhill still holding firmly onto the axe. Hmm. The group managed to survive a little while longer before hunger struck once again. Now, instead of attempting to forage or hunt or fish, they decided that it was time to kill another one of their own. The group drew straws, and this time it was Mather who drew the short straw. Unlike the way they blitz attacked Dalton, Mather was given time to be alone so he could confess his sins to God and ask for forgiveness. When he believed he'd made peace with his maker, Mather returned to the group. He was struck over the head, bled out, disemboweled, and his flesh was also consumed by the group. Wow. Yeah. So this is also another one. Some say that Boddenham was Mm -hmm. the one who he had his moment to like make peace with God and all of that. And then later on, Mather just fell ill. Yeah. And so they're like, well, he can't continue the trek because this whole time they're still hiking essentially. Right. Um, And that he got sick. And so they just killed him when he was sick. Mm. But either way, neither of those guys made it. Yes. And one of them was probably eaten. Or both. Yeah. The group continued their trek, but at this point, they're all super dirty, wearing tattered clothes, suffering from everything from infection to hypothermia after attempting to cross water in the cold, rainy fall air. And all in all, I mean, it was like like they're suffering out there. Yeah. A new rift was wedging its way into the group. With Greenhill and Travers buddying up, while Pierce was often being ignored as they all continued pushing forward. Mm. And so if we're just considering what it's like to be in Pierce's shoes for a second, Mm -hmm. Greenhill knows how to use the stars and the sun to navigate. He's also got the ax. Mm -hmm. Travers has experience as a butcher. He knows how to prepare the food. Right. What does Pierce know how to do? He doesn't really have a skill. Yeah. So it makes sense that he would start becoming more paranoid. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. If this scenario is accurate. Mm Mm-hmm. If this is really how it was, it would make sense that he would be like, oh, you know, I'm probably next. Yeah. So the paranoia intensified as each man began to grow increasingly distrustful of the other members, wondering what move may be the wisest in order to keep from being the next one to meet the axe. So it's also important to remember that Greenhill and Travers had been friends for a while, even before the escape. Mm. And so Pierce actually claimed that he was planning to attempt to sneak away from them. Because yeah. if push came to shove, he would definitely be the next one on the menu. Right, like, right. No questions asked. Yeah. So, but before he did, nature intervened. The group reached an area of planes, and as Pierce was working through his escape plan in his mind, suddenly Travers cried out in pain. When the other two rushed to his side, it was discovered that he'd been bitten on the foot by a snake, and not just any snake. Oh. He was bitten by a tiger snake. Ooh. So for those who don't know, tiger snakes are one of the deadliest snakes in all of Australia. They have a neurotoxic venom, and their venom also contains coagulants. Someone suffering from a tiger snake bite may experience headaches, nausea, dizziness, loss of consciousness, and due to the toxins found in the venom, and due to the amount of venom that a tiger snake can release in a single bite, if a wound is left untreated, a person could experience major problems with their blood, Mm -hmm. kidneys, neurological function, just to name a few. Their bite is also extremely painful, like right away. So obviously these guys don't have any anti-venom handy 
and they would have no idea on how to treat a tiger snake bite since none of them had any experience with them at all. Right. So according to Alexander, he and Greenhill carried Travers and like they alternated between carrying him and resting with him for the course of five days before Travers begged them to put him out of his misery. Oh, gosh. A lot of doubt has been cast on this claim because typically someone bitten by a tiger snake that's like left untreated will die within about 24 hours or so, Hmm. depending on like where the bite is and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of people are like, "Mm, I don't know about that. It sounds like it could have either been a different kind of a snake that Mm -hmm. would be a slower, a slower death. Yeah. Or uh, he's not sharing the whole story of how he actually mm-hmm. died, which is... And it could, I mean, honestly, it could have been even a non-venomous snake and his wound just got infected. Yeah. And true. he got really sick, you know? Because the symptoms of infection aren't that different. Yeah. I mean, nausea, vomiting, all that kind of stuff. He could pass out if he's got a high fever. Right. So, hmm. who knows? But that, that is what he claimed. And so they laid Travers down, got him comfortable, and they kind of waited for him to kind of pass out. Yeah. And then they struck him with the axe. They then proceeded to eat Travers, but this time they didn't bother to carve and cook him like they had with the others. Right. They well, just like he was one that knew how to do it. They just, yep, cut off the chunks and ate it raw. Ooh. Which like I can't decide if that's worse or not. It's, uh, it's definitely not better. Definitely not better. But I can't uh, figure out ooh. if it's worse. Like, and I also hope they avoided the leg area. Like, yeah, the one that was sick and infected. And, right. Well, and envenomated. I feel like- if there's venom in his blood, all of his blood would be carrying that too, right? Well, I don't know if venom is necessarily like toxic to ingest. In oh, the same. Okay, I mean, that's fair. Maybe it is. Yeah, I don't know. Either way. Because it like, I, I think that's something that's got, uh, maybe that's hematoxin, not neurotoxin. I was going to say something like it would need to be injected into the bloodstream rather than ingested. Yeah. But I could be at the end of the day, mixing my marbles around. It still sounds crazy. Like, yeah. on top of eating a person, it's still like, man, bold move. Yeah, for <laughs> okay. sure. Okay. So Greenhill and Pierce rested for a few days before continuing their journey, unknowingly walking more than 20 miles in the wrong direction from their intended destination. Oh. Sick, cold, exhausted, and more paranoid than ever, both men hardly slept, each not trusting the other, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it was kind of like this like intense standoff where Greenhill still has the axe and he's like like huddling over it and sleeping on top of it every night. Mm-hmm. And then Alexander is just like laying there awake for like days on end because he doesn't trust Greenhill not to kill him. Right. So intense and scary. Oh. I would hate that. Yeah. So one night, Greenhill finally succumbed to his exhaustion and fell asleep without the axe underneath him. Pierce didn't waste a second. He took the axe, lifted it above his head, and brought it crashing down onto Greenhill's skull, also opting to eat the flesh of his former friend. Yeesh. And then he pressed forward. Pierce continued walking, he thinks roughly east, for about a week or so until he realized that he recognized vaguely his surroundings. Mm-hmm. He was near one of the sheep farms that was run by ex-convicts. Oh. Yeah, so it's unclear if it's one that he had already worked at. Mm-hmm. But he would recognize somebody there very quickly. So finally, nearly two months after his initial escape, Pierce walked onto the pasture of this farm and chased down the closest herd of sheep, 
grabbing and tearing apart the first little lamb that he could catch in order to satiate his hunger. Mm, Which is really, like, I get it to an extent. Because he'd also been walking for, like, a week with no food. Right. At this point. He just ate his last friend. So, like, friends are off the menu. Right. And he's not foraging for anything, really. Yeah. So, like, to an extent, I understand why he would be, like, overtaken by... Hunger. Hunger by his mental state, his physical state, all of that. But it's still sad. Yeah. Poor little lamb was just chilling. So one of the men working on the farm recognized Pierce and took him in. After taking some downtime to recover, Alexander began working as a farm laborer alongside the other shepherds. So I don't know why, but he decided that he didn't want to stay there and that he wanted to try his luck back out in the wilderness, like and heading towards the escape destination. Within about a week or so, maybe two weeks, Pierce stumbled into another group of escapees, and it wouldn't be long before all of the men were captured and brought back to Hobart Town because one of the ex-convicts sold them out for a $10 reward. (laughs) And while the other guys were all hanged, the authorities back at the colony were shocked that Pierce was still alive, and so they wanted to know his story. Yeah. Pierce told the prison chaplain, who then told the officials the story that I just told you. And due to its grotesque and shocking nature, the officials actually didn't believe that he was telling the truth. They thought that he was probably just being a loyal friend who was refusing to sell out his buddies who were probably still out there, like alive (laughs) and kicking, like they were thriving in the wilderness. Right. They would eventually come to believe him in the following years, though, when soldiers from the colony would stumble upon the eviscerated remains of multiple men in the forest pretty much exactly where Pierce said that they were killed. Because oh he was able to say it was this mountain in this area yeah, that yeah. this guy died. Yeah. Huh. And so they found remains. Wow. Yeah. He was sent back to Sarah's Island where he would become a regular at the whipping post and in solitary confinement. He would also do all of his work in heavy iron chains. And this was how he was supposed to live out the rest of his sentence. But the story doesn't end here. No way. Pierce would escape again. Wow. Pierce and a 17-year-old boy by the name of Thomas Cox got to chatting. Pierce told him that escape was possible, and the two of them would definitely be able to pull it off together, but maybe even better Mm. than my first attempt because now I've done this before. Right. And he also kind of got this weird, like, legend status among the prisoners who were like, (laughs) Pierce can, you know. Yeah, he's the guy who did it, and also he ate Multiple people. Everyone wanted to be on his good side. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So on November 12th, 1823, the two set out with an axe and some provisions, using the axe to remove their chains before taking off into the wilderness. The two had made a quick escape, but it would be less than two weeks before Alexander killed, carved, and ate Cox down to the bone. He also climbed a tree and placed Cox's decapitated head on a branch. He also removed his hands and stuffed leftover human flesh into his pockets to save for later. Yeah. Yikes. Oh, boy. He's really gone. Off the rails. All the way. Yes. Uh, Well, and this is the weirdest part. I I don't know why I didn't write this down, but when. Actually, hold on. Wait a second. I'll tell you that in a second. Okay. Okay. Strangely enough. Pierce spotted a boat a short time later, and instead of using stealth to, like, sneak up on the boat and steal it, or instead of attempting to hide so he wouldn't get caught, he built a small fire and lit it, like a signal fire, Mm. quickly alerting the attention of the men on the boat. 
Yeah. He then turned himself in and was brought back to Sarah's Island. He told Jeez. the officials that Cox had escaped with him, but that he drowned. A quick sweep of the area where Pierce had been found mm-hmm. showed the absolutely shocking state of Cox's remains. And this is what I was going to say. Mm. And a bunch of food provisions. Oh. Like he had a bunch of food that they'd <sighs> stolen. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He literally tricked him into coming out. So he could so kill he, him and he, eat him. Yeah. He was. He had a hankering for man meat. Yeah. Like Ooh. what even? So it was not long before Alexander Pierce was tried and found guilty of murder. He was sentenced to death by hanging on July 19th, 1824. His body was then donated to science and used in medical dissection. When the dissection was complete, his skull was sent off to an artist who used his skull to create an illustration for a medical journal, I think. Hmm. Um, And then interestingly, his skull was kept and passed around for decades and eventually landed either at the University of Pittsburgh or at the Pennsylvania Museum, where it remains to this day on display. Yeah. So what really happened in the Tasmanian wilderness all those years ago? Was this like a real-life Lord of the Flies situation, or is this nothing more than a heart-wrenching tale of survival at all costs? Mm. Or is this the story of a man who found a taboo passion? Oh my gosh. I really hope it's not that. Oh boy. Since we only have Pierce's version of events to go off of, I'm afraid that we'll never know for sure. If you want to read more about this story in incredible detail, check out the book Hell's Gates by Paul Collins. But yeah, that is what I have for you today. That is crazy. Yeah, there are like, because so many different people reported on it in so many different ways, Mm -hmm. there's been like sort of like a telephone game thing that has happened with this story. Like there's a lot of quotes that are attributed to Alexander Pierce that I didn't include because I'm actually not sure if he actually said them. Oh, like some people say his last words were like, human flesh is so delicious. It's more delicious than pork. Like things like that. Yeah. And like one never knows what they would do uh, if they were forced to eat their fellow man, like what would drive them to do it. Things like that that were like very sensationalized. But I feel like even without that, this is such a Mm -hmm. bizarre story. It's so bizarre. Yeah. Especially that turn at the end with the, with the kid, with Cox. Yes. It's like, he's, he did that on purpose. Some people were like, maybe he did it, got that like final release and was like, I am disgusted with myself. Yeah. I'm turning myself in. Or he realized I'm not going to be able to survive in the forest alone. Right. So it could have been any number of things. We'll never know though. Right. Because what he confessed, he stuck to it. Oh my gosh. That's wild. Just absolutely wild. I'm like shocked at definitely the last 15 minutes or so. Yeah. Oh, wow. It was a slow burn and like a long buildup, but. Worth it. I feel like, okay. This this was, uh, you know, we say this often. We're not like, this was a great story in the sense of like. We loved this. We loved it. Yeah. But it's it's a story that has a lot to it that you just are like, you're you're on the edge of your seat the whole time mm-hmm. and you're like, what what right like constantly. So I feel like it highlights very like a a very broad chasm between like what a human is willing to do to stay alive mm-hmm. and just like how wicked we are. Yeah, especially in that last bit. Yeah, where it's like, would we be willing to do that to survive? 
Mm. I, I don't know. Pro- probably not, but like I've never been in that scenario. Right. You you can't. These really are like say. sane people. Right. That there's so many stories of sane right. people who end up in a scenario like this and they do what this they have to. This was their only option. Right. Right. But then also, like in the same story, the fact that we have a more calculated mm-hmm. execution of the same mm-hmm. thing, it makes you wonder like, did he taste something? Yeah. And it awakened something in him. You know what I mean? Right. Like that, that's wicked. That's right. evil. You know? There's so many different ways to go about all that. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, to put it simply, is a wild story with all kinds of variables that like, will I'm remain sure a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. We'll never know. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. Unsavory for us, but I'm sure mm. very savory for Alex. Ew. Um, no. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> he ate his friends, Kevin. He savored it, obviously. That's why he did it again. But Kevin, stop. <laughs> Uh, if you aren't already, please make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform to this podcast and that you leave a glowing five-star review. Those reviews help other people find this podcast who listen to similar ones. Also, make sure that you are following us on social media. We're on Instagram and TikTok at This One Is A Doozy and on Facebook, This One's A Doozy Podcast. And also, if you want to connect with us even more directly and hear a bunch of awesome bonus episodes, you can do that by meeting us over on Patreon. My love, how do they do that? Yes. So you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozy pod. And for $5 a month, you can support our show. Supporters on Patreon also get access to two exclusive episodes each month, along with voter polls and all sorts of little extras. So Mm -hmm join us on over there. That's right. All right. Well, with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Bye.